0: November of 2017 was a, a pretty significant time in my life. I sat in a doctor's office and have a doctor come in with test results that say uh, you have a form of lymphoma. is uh, kind of a stressful day. And, uh, you know, immediately following that kind of time, after kind of the initial shock wore off of the whole diagnosis, then the questions really start to happen, you know. Why is this happening? What's going on? God, why are you letting this happen to me? Um, I think those questions are pretty natural for everybody and trying, f- trying to deal with just whatever comes our way, and uh, really had a lot of those exact same feelings myself. Started down the road of treatments pretty well right away. Uh, would see some real positive results for a while with the treatments I was on, and then some uh, not so positive results. Uh, why can't we just get on with this and get done with it and um looking back now a couple of years later um i have a little different perspective i s- start to look at not just the progression of my disease and what happened on the roller coasters with all of that but in the midst of that what was god doing bigger picture in my life um, I think about a a story in, in John where Jesus and his disciples were walking along the road and they came across a man who'd been blind since he was born and the question that his disciples wanted to know was who was it that sinned this man or his parents that caused him to be born blind and Jesus' response was it was not because of sin but it was so that the works and the glory of God might be revealed through this man and the condition that he was in. And then Jesus goes on to heal him. You know, I think about my own life and I think about why did I have cancer? Why am I dealing with this? Why is this treatment not working? And ultimately the answer to that question has to become for me that, so that God could be revealed through what was going on in my life, both to me and then as a testimony to other people. You know, God's done some really cool things in my life the last couple of years. Um, Might not have thought they were cool at the time and really didn't want to go through them. But now looking back, I'm glad that I have. I have a real deeper understanding and a real deeper appreciation for not only Scripture and for the words of encouragement and hope and strength we find in God's Word, but through the songs we sing together, uh, which is a huge part of my life. Uh, I've seen God do some incredible things in in my family, and just um, repairing some some hurts and and some some hard strained relationships, and just some neat things that God has done. So ultimately, it's 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 uh, I won't say easy, but it's it's worth it to look back now and see all that God has brought me through in the last two years, and all that I've kind of learned. And, Grown from that, and hope that um, it's made me better. Uh, It's made me a better person. It's made me better equipped and better able to to empathize and to deal with with other people who are walking a similar journey. And it's given me a better understanding that uh, God God has a plan and a purpose for whatever we go through.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Robert. That story, uh, most of us who've been here the last two years have have been a part of that story, actually, uh, because uh, God used that whole event in Robert's life to bind us closer together as a church and closer to Him. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, when you think about the mistakes a lot of us make when we go through storms in our life is the first thing we think is, well, what did I do wrong? Why? What have I done to deserve this? And and quite often the answer is nothing. You didn't do anything to deserve this because God didn't cause this. The Bible is very clear that there are times when God uses external circumstances to punish His people, but you can check me on this, and I hope you will. In the Bible, every time that happens, the people who were being punished knew that God was doing it, and they knew why. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an effective punishment. It's like whacking your kid for no reason. Uh, So, if you are going through a storm right now and you can't directly trace it to some mistake you've made, some bad choice you've made, or God hasn't revealed to you, okay, this is to correct this aspect of your life, otherwise you know this isn't something that I deserve. This is something that's just the result of living in a messed up world. But the good news is that uh, as Joseph says in Genesis fifty twenty, what the enemy meant for evil or what you meant for evil, God turned it into good. That's what God did in Robert's cancer. That's what He does in our storms if we trust in Him. See, God is writing a story in your life. He's writing a story in mine. And the story He wants to write is a story of redemption, a story that will reach many people are you going to let him write that story? Because the difference between us and fictional characters in a novel is we have a choice. We can choose to rebel. Hamlet d- couldn't choose whether to go do what Shakespeare told him to or not. He did what Shakespeare told him to. We don't have that. We have a choice. Are we going to follow God's script for our lives? Or are we going to go our own way? You know, this morning we sang a couple of songs, I will, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Lord, whatever may come, it is well with my soul. What we were saying to God is, Lord, I give you permission to lead me through the lowest valley, to lead me through difficult times, if that is your will. I will trust you even in those things. You may have sung that just uh, without even thinking about what you were singing, but that's what you were singing. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to live that way and why that's the best way to live. So, we're in a series right now called His Story. And the great thing about the Bible, well, one of the great things about the Bible, is that it is not, as a lot of people think, just a random collection of tales and commandments and rituals. It's actually one long story, one long, beautiful story. It's, It's basically the biography of God. It's the story of how from creation all the way into things that haven't yet happened, like the return of Christ and the redemption of this world, it's how through all of that, God is working to bring peace to chaos. And last week, we talked about creation and how God took formless and void, literal chaos, and He turned it into a beautiful world over the course of six days. Now, we're, here at First Baptist, we have a vision over the next ten years. We want to see 10,000 different times us be involved in that story. Because the story God's trying to write in your life is for you to be involved in the lives of others and to be a small part of what He's accomplishing in the world. In other words, we want you to be a part of transforming relationships. 10,000 different times First Baptist Church members over the next 10 years will get involved in transforming relationships. And some of you say, well, what's a transforming relationship? And I've tried to define it, and I've tried to give little examples, but let me say it to you this way. All of us, if we're fortunate, if we're blessed, if we can think back over the course of our lives, we can think back to people who have made a positive impact on us. And I'm not talking about your parents or your, the rest of your extended family. I mean people like teachers, coaches. Um, maybe once you got into the working world, you had a boss who was more than just an employer. He was actually a mentor to you. Uh, friends, uh, coworkers, neighbors, someone who invested in your life and made a difference in you. Someone who maybe taught you an important skill, Maybe someone who helped you through a dark time. Maybe someone who was just there for you, and the way they lived inspired you to change the way you live. Someone who you can look back on and say, because I knew this person, I am a better person. They have taught me. You can, you can even point to, here's who I am today because of this person. And hopefully, you can look back and see those people in your life. All we're asking is for First Baptist to be our main business, to be producing people who have those kinds of relationships on an ongoing basis. 10,000 different times, we want you to be that person to someone else over the next 10 years, and we think that's going to make an impact on our community, but it's also going to glorify God because it shows we're about the business that God is about, which is redeeming lives and bringing peace to chaos. Now, you might say, okay, that's all well and good, Jeff, but if God brought peace to chaos, then why is our world so messed up? I mean, last week we looked at the creation story and how everything He made, when He got done, He looked at it and said, behold, this is very good. Well, then why is our world in the state that it's in? I mean, why, why do I turn on the news and I see there's a virus that that's, everybody's afraid of coming out of China, and, and there's turmoil in the Middle East, and there's, there's war in these various places, and there's division in Washington, D.C.? Why, why does our good friend, a, a good man, get a, a disease that could have killed him? and put his life through so much turmoil over the course of a couple of years. Why? And we get an answer in Genesis 3. So what I want to do, what I want to do today is I want to show you a story from Scripture, how the Bible is so incredibly well written that we see the the narrative of God over the course of centuries and what He's accomplishing, all right? So you're going to enjoy this because this is a good story. Not because of me, because it's just an incredible story. Genesis 3 tells us the story of why the world's so messed up. Genesis 3 is the fall of humanity. Now, we're not going to read out of there, but I'm giving you some background. That's the story in which the first man and the first woman made a fateful decision. They were given a perfect world. God said, I'm giving you everything you could ever need or want. And yet they said, that's not enough, God. I want more. I want to go my own way. I want to make my own decisions and find happiness on my own terms. And the result was they walked away from God. They were banished from His presence and entered into the world sin, suffering, war, division, and ultimately death. Basically, every bad thing you can name in the world was because of that one choice. And so in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, we see the fruits of that bad choice. We see the first murder as those, that couple's first two sons, Abel and Cain, get into an argument and Cain kills his brother. Isn't it interesting? The first act of violence in the Bible is an act of domestic violence. It ought to tell you right from the beginning, the devil attacks families, right? That is the foundation. Cain kills Abel, and Cain in the aftermath is, is confronted by God, and he's terrified. He says, God, when, when more people get onto this planet, and they're going to come across me, and they're going to see me as a murderer, they're going to kill me. And God says, no, I'm going to protect you. Think about the grace there, the first murder in human history, and God says, I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make it known that anybody who hurts Cain will be avenged sevenfold. In other words, if you kill Cain, seven of your family will die then skip forward five generations into the future. Same chapter, Genesis 4, we see a man come along named Lamech. Lamech is the great, great, great grandson of Cain, and he marries two women. That's the first time we see that particular sin crop up on planet earth. Again, God, said, God created something beautiful, said, I'm going to create male and female, and they're going to get together, and they're going to build something beautiful. And Lamech says, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine, but I want double. I don't want what you provide. I want my own way. And so there's a story in Genesis 4 in which Lamech is talking to his two wives, and he says, listen, ladies, there was this guy who hurt me, so I killed him. That's what a bad dude I am. That's why you better not mess with me. And then he boasts. He says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech is avenged 77-fold. Again, God has His way of protecting and providing, but I'm going to go my own way. I can do better for myself. Than anything God can do for me. And then you skip centuries ahead into Genesis 11, and humankind has taken the next step of rebellion because we see a group of people leave the community of human beings and move out on their own to form a new city, and they start to build a tower And they're looking for two particular things. They're looking for significance and security. Listen to what they say in Genesis 11, verse 3. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So again, they're looking for significance and security. What we all need, right? They're looking for significance. We want to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build something so beautiful, so enduring, so impressive that for the rest of time, people will remember us and celebrate us. We want security too. And listen, listen to what their security is in. We don't want to be dispersed over the whole earth. See, their security should be, we have a God who loves us, who walks with us. All we have to do is walk along with Him and we will be safe. No, their security is, let's stick together. Let's let's strengthen numbers. Let's let's become a, a, a mighty city. Well, guess what happens? they end up with neither one of those things. Do you know the names of any of the builders of the Tower of Babel? I don't. I'm pretty sure you don't. Their names are forgotten. They wanted significance. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The only lasting remembrance they had was, I am sure, for generations to come, that unfinished ruin of a tower stood in that city as a monument to human foolishness. Did they get security? No, the very thing they were afraid of, being dispersed over the whole earth, that happened as a result of their project. Humanity was spread over the whole earth because of what they did. So, at the end of Genesis 11, we see a situation where the world is in a terrible state. Mankind is full of murder, violence, hatred, division, and alienation from God and all of its awful fruits. So, the the ball is in God's court at this point. What is He going to do? Well, probably not what you and I would have done. That's where we pick up Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So we've been introduced, if we read the Bible starting in Genesis 1, we've been briefly introduced to this man Abram, but all of a sudden God just comes to him and offers him three promises. Two of them are significance. I will make your name great. And security. Whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed. Isn't it interesting? He offers to Abram the very things the builders of the Tower of Babel wanted but didn't get. And then he offers him a third thing, a third promise, something that the builders of Babel had no concept of because they were totally focused on themselves. The third promise is in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Abram, this world is a mess. This world is chaos. I'm about bringing peace to chaos, and you are the beginning of my plan to accomplish that. Think about that. Now, you and I probably wouldn't have done things this way. Imagine we were deciding we're going to start a new race of people who are going to be used by God to change the world for good. We probably would start with a very young, strong, handsome, intelligent man and a very young, intelligent, beautiful woman and bring them together so they can make pretty babies and create a great new race, right? That's not what God does. God starts with a couple who are childless. They've been married a long time and they're beyond the childbearing stage of life. They're in the let's eat dinner at 4.30 and get the senior citizen discount at Golden Corral stage of life. (laughs) They're at the… A big night for us is we fall asleep watching cable news on the couch stage of life, right? And God says… Go to the place where I, where I will show you. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't even tell them where they're going. He doesn't say, okay, here's the way to the place, and here's what it's going to look like, and here's what, gonna, what I'm going to offer you there. He's like, just follow me. Say yes now, write me a blank check with your life, and say yes, and I'll tell you where to go from here. You have to trust. Now, here's where the story really diverges from the way American Christianity would write it. Because let's be honest, Popular American Christianity is very much focused on individual prosperity and success. And if you listen to a lot of sermons, if you read a lot of Christian books, it's all about: hey, if you just, if you just give your heart to the Lord, you'll just blessings will rain down upon you. So if an American preacher or American Christian was writing the story of Abram, it would probably go like this: they moved. From, Egypt, from, uh, from Ur to the place where God told them, and immediately all their possessions just quadrupled. And then one day, Abram was coming home from work, and he came home to his, his four-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath, two-camel garage tent, and, and, and Sarai was standing there with one of those home pregnancy tests saying, it's time to buy a car seat, Abram. And he was like, yay, what's a car seat? But that's not what happens. Abram and Sarai move to Canaan, which is the present holy land. And what do they find in Canaan? The land is in the midst of a famine. God steered them from a place of prosperity to a place where there was no food. So they have to go to Egypt to save their own lives from starvation. Not the last time a child of God will flee to Egypt, by the way. Look that one up. And when they get to Egypt, Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt, takes one look at Sarai, who must have been an exceptionally beautiful woman for her age, and says, I want her, and brings her into his harem. Now, fortunately, God was protecting her, and she was not violated by this man, and yet that is still not the kind of thing you expect to happen when you take this amazing leap of faith like Abram and Sarai did. Their lives got worse, not better in the short term. Then we skip to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abram again. Now, years have passed. Abram has been faithful, and God has blessed him. He's now a very wealthy man, in part because Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave him a bunch of money. He was so sorry for stealing his wife. Abram has all this money, and he says to God, hey, Lord, while you're here, I'm a little concerned because you said that I was going to be a great nation, but we still don't have any children. And right now, all this wealth that I have that you blessed me with, I'm going to have to leave it to my servant Eliezer of Damascus. And God says, no, you're not. Go outside, look up at the stars, so shall your offspring be. And Abram rejoiced, and Eliezer of Damascus probably didn't, Right? But then God did something unexpected. He said, I want you to go, and I want you to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. I want you to cut the animals in half and lay them side by side. And Abram did it. So here's something you probably don't know. In the ancient world, it was, it was common to make covenants between humans, between individuals, between, uh, between families, between villages, even between nations. And, and often when you would make a covenant, you would do a symbolic action, and this was one of them. Sometimes you would take an animal and cut it in half, and you would walk in the midst of those pieces as a way of saying, if I don't fulfill my part of this covenant, may I be cut in half, may I be destroyed. And so, Abram, as he's getting these animals and he's doing this, this uh, ritual that God required of him, he's probably thinking, okay, I get it. God's going to want me to walk in the midst of the pieces and, and pledge my loyalty to Him. But instead, Abram sees a, a flaming torch and a smoking firepot pass between the pieces of the animals. So, what God is saying to Abram is, I'm making the covenant, not you. I'm pledging myself to you. I will fulfill this or you can kill me. And then you skip to chapter 17. In chapter 17, Abram is now 99 years old. By the way, Abram's name is Exalted Father. You think that name ever stung a little bit? In a world where you were measured by the number of your children, do you think it ever stung for Abram to say, hey, I'm Abram. Um, By the way, I don't have any children. It's sort of like when you're, when you're young and, and you get the name Slim, and then later on you're not so slim, right? And, and it's like we have, a, a, we have some family friends, really great family. They have a son that they named Champ, and, and I don't, we're not around them anymore. I, I've seen pictures of Champ. He's a handsome young man, but wouldn't it be ironic and terrible if Champ finished last at everything he did? You know, you, you, there are some names that are just hard to carry around, God comes to Abram and He says, listen, Abram, I'm still going to make you a great nation. And I want your people to be my people. I'm not going to love them any more than other people. I'm going to use them to accomplish my plan to redeem the world. And I want them to always know they're my people. So, I want you and all your offspring to have an external sign, something on your body to remind you that you belong to me, that you're not your own. And so, Abram, I want you today to go and be circumcised. And Abram said, hey, God, how about instead I go to Egypt and do that to Pharaoh? That's not actually what he said, but he probably thought it. And then God said, and then I've also got a new name for you. It's interesting when you look through the Scriptures how often God does this. Whether it's God the Father, or whether it's Jesus and His disciples, you see people who interact with the Lord, and their lives get changed. They also get a new name, like Levi becomes Matthew, which means gift of God. And so God says to Abram, you're no longer going to be Abram, you're going to be Abraham, which means father of many. And Sarai will now be Sarah, which means princess. And then more years pass. And in Genesis 21, at long last, this incredible miracle takes place. This baby arrives. And there's this great detail where they name the child Isaac, which is the name that, that God gave them, but the name means he laughs, literally means he laughs. Now, I want you to see Genesis 21.6. This is Sarah's explanation. She says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. What is she saying? She's saying, is this not the most hilarious thing you've ever seen? Is this not the craziest? Doesn't God have an incredible sense of humor? We're going to be the only couple in H-E-B with Pampers and Depends in the same shopping cart. (laughs) You see, she's right. Everyone laughed who heard of it. And from that incredibly joyful, incredibly exciting high point, we go straight into Genesis 22, the very next chapter, very beginning of the next chapter in verse 2. God says to Abraham, "Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you." This is a very, very dark chapter of the Bible. Very confusing. Very hard to read. We don't know how old Isaac was when this happened. We know he was, he was big enough that he could carry a stack of wood that Abraham placed upon him, but he was young enough to still ask his dad questions. So as they're walking up the side of the mountain with that wood, uh, Isaac looks at his dad and says, I, I have the wood and you have the torch, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And don't you know that old man swallowed really hard before he answered? He said, the, the Lord will provide a lamb for the offering, my son. And they get to the top of the mountain, the mountain which is today the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they take that stack of wood and they, they place it in the right spot and, they, and Abram, Abraham has to tie his son's hands and feet and place him on that altar. And he takes the knife to slay his son. And then he hears the voice of God say, Abraham, Abraham. And he sees in a thicket nearby, a ram has its horns caught in the branches. And so His words come true. God provided a lamb. And so the the ram dies, and the boy goes free. And we look at that story, and we say, I'm glad it ended that way, but how could God put an 112-year-old man, or however old Abraham was at that time, how could He put this, this man through something so terrible? It seems so ridiculous. And yet, what we don't understand is in that time, child sacrifice was such a common thing. It was, it was incredibly common in, in the ancient world to think, if I really want a trump card, if I really want to put the gods on my side, all I have to do is just sacrifice one of my children. And we've seen proof. Archaeologists have uncovered cities uh, of the people who lived in the Holy Land before the Israelites did. And they've seen that in many of the houses, there are tiny skeletons built into the walls. Because it was common in that world to say, when you built a house, I want the gods to bless me, and so I'll sacrifice one of my children, and therefore this house will be blessed. And when Moses comes along and gives us the, the law of God, we see the heart of God on this as he says, don't you ever even think about sacrificing your children. That is not the kind of God I am. So why is He doing this to Abraham? He's doing it to show him, listen, I want you to go through this process so you see what kind of God I am. By the way, keep in mind, Abraham and Sarah, they need to be taught. They're not perfect. We've skipped over chapter 16. You know what happens in chapter 16? In chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah get this Really idiotic idea that. Well, we still don't have a baby yet, but uh, Sarah, you know, you've got this servant girl Hagar, and she's young and she's of childbearing age. How about I have a baby with her? Now, now you and I know what that's called. You know, you and I know what that's called when a slave is taken advantage of by her master. Slavery is bad enough, but you throw rape into the midst. Abraham and Sarah did something monstrous because they lacked faith in God. So who's to say? Living in a world where everybody else believed the way to please God is to sacrifice a child, who's to say they wouldn't have made the same decision with one of their other children? God is saying to Abraham and to us in Genesis 22, it's not about what you can give me. It's not about you impressing me with your devotion. It's about what I can give you. It's about me overwhelming you with my grace. It's not about what you can do for me. It's what I and only I can do for you. I'm the one that provides salvation, and it is free to all who will receive it. So if you don't know how the story ends, the story ends with Abraham giving birth, Abraham raising up Isaac. Isaac marries a young woman named Rebecca. One of the two children they have is a man named Jacob. Jacob, after a really rough start, becomes a passionate God follower. God changes his name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the patriarchs of a brand new nation that we know is the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And so there's so many lessons we can learn from this story. We learn, first of all, that God always keeps His promises, always fulfills His promises, but it's almost never on our timeline. So you have to be patient. You have to trust. We We learn that when it seems like God is not up to anything, that's sometimes when He's up to His biggest work. And we learn that it's always the best idea to choose God's path instead of our own. God's path is always the right choice. Think about this. Abraham grew up in a city called Ur in present-day Iraq. Uh, We are told that that Ur was one of the great, great cities of the ancient world. And there are many people, many scholars who believe that Ur was the actual location of the Tower of Babel. And if that's the case, think about Abraham growing up in that city and every day seeing the ruins of that tower, that unfinished tower, and seeing the fruit of making choices in humanity saying, we know what's best for us. And is it any wonder then that Abraham, when God finally approached him and gave him his life's goal, he said, yeah, I'll choose your path, God, because I see what happens when we choose our own. But listen. Listen. This isn't just about the choices we make. This isn't just about the story of one man. This is part of God's bigger story. See, the really, really cool thing about Abraham's story is it didn't just impact him and his immediate family. It impacted generations to come. Because think about it. When God provided that lamb in Genesis 22 to rescue Isaac, He was foretelling a day when He would provide an even greater lamb to rescue us. He did, God did what He refused to let Abraham do. He sacrificed His son, His only son, whom He loved for us. When God walked between those carcasses in Genesis 15, sealing that covenant with Abraham, He was saying, kill me if I fail to keep up my end of the bargain. And I'm sure Abraham thought, well, this is wonderful, Lord, but I couldn't kill you if I wanted to. You don't even have a body that I could kill. And yet God knew. God knew when He was walking between those carcasses. So there's going to come a day when I will take on a human body, a body that can be killed, that you, that your offspring will nail to a cross. And I will do it willingly. I will die for you. Isn't it ironic? God pledged, if I break the covenant, kill me. And yet we were the ones that broke the covenant. God didn't. We failed and He died in our place. And think back even further to Genesis 12, to Genesis 12 when, when God made those promises to Abraham, those three big promises. Did God bring significance to Abraham's life when He said, I will make your name great? Well, think about it. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all three religions consider Abraham a prophet. Even more importantly, Galatians tells us that anybody who is a child of God today, no matter their race, no matter their background, if you come to God through Jesus Christ, you are a child of Abraham, a son or a daughter of that man. Yes, his name is great. What about the security that God promised? Did God bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him? Yes, absolutely. Have you ever thought about the fact that for all of human history people have been trying to eliminate the Jewish people? Everybody from Haman in the book of Esther to Hitler in World War II, everybody's been trying to kill the Jewish people and yet they still exist? Isn't that proof that God has a purpose for them? That God's promises are true? Yes, God brought security to the offspring. Of Abraham. But what about that third promise? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did that come true? Yes, and that's the best part. In fact, that's the point of Abraham's life. God's goal in Abraham's life wasn't just to bless this man. It was to change the world. And you think about it. We are blessed because of Abraham, not just because the people of Israel exist. I want to be clear about something. The Jewish people are God's chosen people, not because God loves the Jews more than other people. God loves Jews, but He loves Argentinians. God loves, uh, God loves Chileans. God lo- I'm going to get off South America. God loves Vietnamese. God loves Russians. God loves Americans. God even loves people in East Texas. God loves Arabs as much as He loves Jews. They're God's chosen people because they're the ones God chose through whom to do His redemptive work. And how did He do that? Not through all of Israel, he did it through one Israelite, one Israelite named Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Joseph, who came, died and rose again so we can all have eternal life. So every person — Argentinians, Jews, Arabs and everybody else — can come to faith, can come to say, salvation, can become part of the family of God. And so I ask you again, what is your story? What is the story God is trying to write in your life? That's the question I want you to wrestle with today and the rest of this year. When people look back on your life, what will they see? Will they see someone who pursued his own goals, his own plans, his own desires? Will they see somebody who was just sort of aimless, bouncing from one attempt at happiness to another? Or will they see someone who says, Lord, my life is yours. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm going to follow you faithfully. No matter what I'm doing for a living, no matter where I'm living, no matter uh, whether I'm married or single, whether I've got kids or don't have kids, whether my kids are great, whether my kids hate my guts, it doesn't, I'm just going to serve you. That's going to be my goal. And it could be that some of you here today are are saying, you know, I'm old now, and and I used to be all into this whole serving God thing, and I did lots of stuff for the Lord, but now I'm to the stage of life where it's about golf and grandkids for me, and I've earned that, right? And and I don't want to begrudge you that. If you're in your retirement years, I, I want you to enjoy those. You certainly have earned those, but we don't know anything about Abraham's life before he was 75. Think about that for a minute. From 75 on were the most significant years of his life. And it could be that if you're 75 or older, this is the time God's been preparing you for all your life. Doesn't mean you have to do the things you did when you were 50 or 25 or 15, but it does mean God has a purpose for you. And there are some of you here today, a lot of you here today, who are in those peak earning years of your life where you're working hard and you're getting it done. And think about the fact that every day you interact with dozens of people. Your contact list is huge, and all of those people are people God loves. And I'm not saying it's your job to win all of those people to salvation. I am saying that in the midst of all of that, you can represent the light of Jesus Christ effectively. I'm saying that in the midst of all those people you come into contact every day, there's at least one or two that God wants you to have a transforming relationship with. Are you willing to say, Lord, just show me the one Show me the one or two who you want me to invest in today. And then some of you are really young. Right here, we've got our student ministry. There's some of you who are, who are just breaking into uh, adulthood or approaching adulthood. And I know because I remember being that age, I, I know the temptation is to say, you know, all this serious stuff is for later. Right now, I need to pursue my own dreams, my own goals. Someday, when I'm all washed up and worn out, and I've done everything I want to do, then I'll turn my life completely over to God and do what He wants me to do. And I know there are some of you who are like, I don't want to give God a blank check now because I don't want to be a a missionary to the Congo where I, dad gum, I sure don't want to be a preacher. I I want to do something good with my life. I want to do something I want to do. And, And just understand, young people, God made you who you are. If there's something you enjoy, something you're good at, something that blesses others, God's going to have you do that for your life. He's going to use that in your life. He's not going to take you to a life you hate. What kind of God do you think He is? He created you for a purpose. And the wisest thing you can possibly do is say, Lord, I'm going to follow you step by step, day by day, just doing whatever's in front of me to do that I know is right. And I know that if I do that, I will end up at the goal you had for me. And my life will be a blessing to others, and I will have significance, and I will have security, and and I can die knowing that for generations to come, my life will speak and make an impact. Whatever your story has been up to now, whether you're 19 or 99, whatever your story has been up to now, today can be the beginning of a brand new story. Praise God. Let us obey Him and see what He does.